Our reading this morning is coming from John chapter 20, verse 19 to 31. John chapter 20, verse 19 to 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we come now to God's word. And can you turn with me to the passage that has just been read to us, John chapter 20. John chapter 20, and we'll be looking at verse 19 to 31. It's going to be a great, great help to me if you do have your Bibles open in front of you, or you may have it on your cell phone or your tablet. John chapter 20 and verse 19 to 31. Let's pray as we come to God's Word. Father, we thank you so much that in these very, very uncertain times in which we live, that we do have a rock and a refuge which is God and his word. We thank you, Father, that you do not change. Our world changes, our country changes, circumstances change, we change. And yet we thank you that you do not change. And the promises of your word do not change. And so we do pray that you may speak to us once again through your word and by your spirit, that we may hear the voice of God. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Now, I don't need to tell you in these days of COVID-19 that we live in a broken and a fallen world. We see it on our screens. 
We see it on the media. As we look at the TV screens, we see it in the eyes of grieving people, sick people. We see it in the eyes of uh, people struggling with cancer or AIDS or the virus. We see it in broken homes and broken marriages and broken communities and broken countries. We see it in dysfunctional families. We live in a broken world. And so there are times when we say, where is God? Think of the days we're living through at the moment. Where is God? God is so loving, so powerful. Why doesn't he do something? Richard Rubenstein, a Jewish man, said, after Auschwitz, it's impossible to believe in God. In my office, I have a book entitled, If I Were God, I'd End All the Pain. It's Easter Sunday, and at Easter time, we remember both the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And both, both events are enormously important. You see, it's at the cross of Christ, which we specially remembered on Friday, that we find something of an answer to the problem of pain and suffering. So at the cross, Christ not only died for our sins, he not only died in our place, but at the cross, God shared in our world of suffering, our world of pain, our world of tears and death. He suffered for us and he suffered with us. So God may not answer all your questions or my questions. He doesn't have to, of course. He's God. But you can never say to him, you don't understand. You can never say that. You can't say, you don't know what it's like. He does know what it's like. He does know what it's like living in this broken, distorted, dysfunctional world. John Stott, a great author, if you ever see any of his books, buy it and read it. John Stott, a great Christian leader, put it like this. It's, it's quite a long quote, but, but I think it's brilliant. Let me quote. He says, I could never myself believe in God if it, if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while I have had to turn away, and in imagination... I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his. End of quote. Isn't that brilliant? So the death of Christ not only tells us that Christ shared in our suffering, but it also tells us the death and resurrection of Christ, that, that God has a plan to put right the brokenness of our world. 
He tells, it tells us that God is confronting the root cause of human misery and pain. The death and resurrection of Christ is a clear sign of God's ultimate triumph over sin and evil and pain and disease and death. So on Friday, Good Friday, we looked at the cross of Christ, the substitutionary death of Christ, where, where God triumphed over sin. This morning, Easter Sunday, we look at the resurrection of Christ, where God triumphs over death. So let's have a look at the passage. John chapter 19, John chapter 20, from verse 19 to 31. And we'll pick up three principles as we work through this passage. First principle, which is the obvious one, is the resurrection of Christ. In chapter 20 and 21, John wants to leave his readers in no doubt. That's us. He wants to leave us in no doubt concerning the physical, bodily resurrection of Christ. Now, as you well know, not everyone, in fact, many people, most people don't believe in the resurrection of Christ. Let me give you a couple of examples, a sample of some of the views held by different people concerning the resurrection. Hugh Squinfeld wrote a book called The Passover Plot. He argues that Jesus didn't die, but he merely swooned. He was unconscious. He was not given the traditional vinegar to drink, but a drug that would render him unconscious and make him appear dead. So the empty tomb was not due to the re, uh, resurrection, according to Squinfeld, but it was due to resuscitation. He didn't actually die, is what he's saying. D.H. Lawrence wrote about Christ in his Passion in 1929. He argued that Jesus survived the crucifixion, ended up in Egypt, and there fell in love with the priestess Isis. Not quite sure what research he did on that particular matter. In 1992, Barbara Teering, who's a well-known author, she argued that Jesus was crucified with uh, Judas and Simon Magus. He drank snake poison to fake his death. He then recovered and he married Mary Magdalene. Here's a good one. 1995, Robert Gray Caven contended that Jesus had, had an identical twin brother called Jerome. He was separated from Jesus, his twin, at birth, and he doesn't see him again until after the crucifixion. He then steals the body of Jesus, that's Jerome, and he pretends as a twin to be the resurrected Christ. I think people who believe that kind of thing are the same people who uh, saw Elvis Presley and Princess die at the Wumpy in Benoni. Very interesting that Muslims have no problem with the ascension of Christ. They see him as a great prophet, of course, but they don't believe in the crucifixion, which of course means there's no resurrection. Orthodox Muslims said that Jesus was not crucified on a cross, but that God made someone else look like Jesus, and this person was mistakenly crucified as Christ. Jesus, however, was taken up alive to heaven without dying. Now, that's some of the views, some of the ideas that we know about, that people tell us that, that are out there. John, however, the Apostle John, one of the twelve, um, 
wants us to understand that what we have here is an eyewitness record. What we actually have in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the source documents of the Christian faith. So if you want to find out about Jesus, read the source documents. Read the Gospels. Read John's Gospel. John wants to leave his readers in no doubt that he was there. In actual fact, he, he points to himself. Have a look at chapter, chapter 20, and, um, and uh, not chapter 20, where am I? Have a look at chapter 19, verse 26. Chapter 19, verse 26, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. So John never mentions his own name in the gospel. But we know that he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. And so John wants to make it quite clear. He was there. He was an eyewitness. He was standing there at the cross with Jesus' mother. Notice how he first wants to confirm in chapter 19 the death of Jesus. So pick it up, chapter 19, verse 30. Chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Chapter 19, verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Chapter 19, verse 40. John goes to great pains to give us the details of the physical death of Christ. He actually died. Verse 40. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. What is John doing? John is stating over and over and over again, I was an eyewitness. I was there. He was dead. He was crucified. When they buried him, they knew this is a dead body. There was no, there was no confusion in the minds of those who, who thrust the spear into the side. There was no confusion in the minds of those who took him to the tomb. He was dead. And then he wants to confirm not just the death of Christ, but the resurrection of Christ. And he once again does that over and over again. So stay with me as we see it here in the text, in the eyewitness records. Chapter 20, verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So he appears to Mary. John gives us a record of that. Chapter 20, verse 19, he appears to the disciples. 
On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Again, verse 26. Jesus appears to the eleven, including Thomas. The previous occasion was minus Thomas, but here we have Thomas, verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And then you have the striking scene in chapter 21, verse 12 again, where Jesus appears to them on the beach. Chapter 21, verse 12, Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. So John wants to make it abundantly clear, I mean over and over again, to his readers that the resurrection was not a myth, it was not a spiritual resurrection, was not a resurrection in the minds of his disciples. No, what we have here is a historical, objective, physical resurrection. It was supernatural. Notice chapter 20, verse 20. They instantly were able to recognize him. Chapter 20, verse 27. The wounds in his hands and side were visible. They were physical. So you see, John is well aware that the Christian faith, the truthfulness of the Christian faith, is dependent on its historical foundations. If you can disprove the historical events of the life, death, resurrection of Christ, the whole thing crumbles. And that's especially true of the resurrection. That's exactly what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 13. Paul makes it quite clear that the historical events of the death and resurrection of Christ are pivotal to the truthfulness of the Christian faith. 1 Corinthians 15, have you got it there? Verse 13. He says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. So my dear friends, if you deny the physical, historical resurrection of Christ, you don't just change the last chapter of the Christian faith. There is no Christian faith. The whole thing disintegrates. Do you know that of all the major world religions, only four are based on historical events and historical people and historical personalities? All the others are based on philosophy or some kind of spirituality. And of the four that are based on historical personalities, only Christianity claims an empty tomb for its founder. So Abraham the founder of Judaism, died about 1,900 B.C. No resurrection was ever claimed for him. Concerning Buddha, it was said the original accounts of Buddha never ascribed to him any such thing as a resurrection. 
In fact, in the earliest accounts of his death, we read that when Buddha died, it was with the utter passing away in which nothing whatever remains behind. Muhammad died June the 8th, 632 AD, at the age of 61 at Medina, where his tomb is annually visited by millions of devout Muslims. What that tells us is that all the millions of Jews and Buddhists and Muslims, they all agree that their founder was never, re was never resurrected. But not so with Christianity. Christianity doesn't hold resurrection as one of the aspects of our faith. Without the resurrection, we have no Christianity at all. The Christian church would never have begun. Christianity stands and falls on the truth of the death and resurrection of Christ. If you disprove it, you can dispose of it all. My dear friends, if Christ did not rise from the dead, he cannot be Savior and Lord. Because death is stronger than Christ. If there's no resurrection, it means that death is the final say. If there's no resurrection, it means there's no forgiveness of sin. If there's no resurrection, it means that Christ won't return. There's no second coming. If there's no resurrection, it means that we are still dead in our sins. If there's no resurrection, it means that there's no heaven, there's no hope. We're just whistling in the wind. Sort of like a game of dominoes. Remember dominoes? Perhaps you've been playing it these last 10, 20 days. You just touch the one, and the whole thing collapses. <laughs> that's, that's how it is with the, with the resurrection of Christ. Deny the resurrection of Christ, and we have nothing. So what do we have here? We have John's account as an eyewitness. He was there confirming both the death and the supernatural resurrection of Christ from the dead. All right, the second thing. First point is the resurrection of Christ. Let's now have a look at the conversion of Thomas. Chapter 20, verse 19, Jesus appears to his disciples. But Thomas wasn't present. Thomas appears in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now it seems to me that Thomas is not just a doubter. I think he's somewhat defiant. I don't even want to see him. I want to touch him. And I don't just want to touch him. I want absolute proof that it's not a hoax. I want to put my finger in the holes in his hands. That's what I want to do, guys. Then I believe it. I want to put my hand into his side. If I can't do that, I won't believe. That's Thomas, the skeptic, the doubter, defiant to the end. 
And then Jesus responds, verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I mean, we see the extraordinary kindness of Jesus. Despite his doubt, his defiance, his unbelief, despite the fact that Thomas, like the other eleven, deserted him at his hour of greatest need, what does Jesus do? He responds to his request. He appears to him. He actually challenges him and says, Put your finger in my, in my hand and your hand into my side. Whether Thomas actually did that, I very, very much doubt. I think Jesus responds positively to Thomas's doubt because Jesus values honesty. That we need to be honest with him. Thomas refused to say, I believe, when he didn't. He, was just, he wasn't just going to go through the motions. He refused to glibly just repeat things which he didn't believe. Well, Jesus doesn't expect you to do that. As Tennyson said, believe me, there lives more faith in honest doubt than in half the creeds. You see, honest doubt will, will in the end arrive at certainty. Having, having said that, I think Jesus does reprimand Thomas. Verse 27, do not disbelieve, but believe. There is a certain defiance and arrogance in Thomas, and Jesus confronts him. I think people do that today. I'll give my life to God if he takes away this virus. I'll follow Christ if he solves all my financial problems. I'll become a missionary if he heals my child. Perhaps we've all said that in one way or the other. My dear friends, we have no right to make demands on God. He's not an elephant or lion in a circus that has to jump through our hoops. No, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the King. And he calls us to stop doubting and believe. I think we all love Thomas. Because we all see something of ourselves in him. And of course in the end he does the right thing. Verse 28, Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Now I think when we have a look at this cameo of Thomas, we, we see almost a prototype, a template, for, for how to respond to Christ. We have an example here. So if God is speaking to you this, this morning, this Easter Sunday morning, and you have felt God the Holy Spirit press in upon your own spirit, as we've been singing and praying and reading God's word, have a look at how Thomas responds, because that's how you ought to respond if you don't yet know him as your Lord and Savior. So notice the three things that, that Thomas did. The first is, a believer is someone who believes certain truths. You need to believe that Jesus actually lived and died 
and that he physically rose from the dead, that he's Lord, that he's King, that he's God. In fact, you cannot be a Christian unless you believe that Jesus is King and Lord and God. Secondly, a believer is someone who personally submits to the Lordship of Christ. Notice verse 28. Thomas uses the personal pronouns. My Lord, my God. It's personal. Knowing God has to do with a personal relationship. It's not enough to merely believe in God intellectually, to merely be associated with religious things, to rub shoulders, perhaps now is not the time, but to rub shoulders with other Christians. Thomas had all of that, but he was not converted. Now there needs to be a personal submission, my Lord and my God. See, what lies at the heart of the Christian faith is not religion, but a relationship. There are plenty of people, my dear friends, in our country who call themselves Christians. Most people in our country do. They know the songs, they know the prayers, they know our Father, they know the Ten Commandments, they know the Golden Rule, they know the Good Samaritan. But they have no idea, not the slightest idea, what it means to have a relationship with God through Christ because they've never submitted to Christ as Lord and God. The third thing there, which is quite striking, the end of verse 27, is that there is an act of the will. There's a decision. You need to cross the line. Literally, it means, the end of verse 27, don't be an unbeliever, but be a believer. Now you think to yourself, surely that's not necessary for Jesus to say that. Surely the evidence of Jesus standing in front of Thomas will make him believe. And yet Jesus issues him this command. Don't be an unbeliever, but be a believer. Meaning, you need to take a step. You need to cross a line. You need to exercise your will. Faith isn't something that happens to you. No, it's something you do. You take a step. It's an act of the will. You see, there comes a point in time when you've heard the gospel, when you've heard what Christ has done for you on the cross, when you've asked all your questions, when you've looked at all the evidence. There comes a time when you have to cross the line, where you have to make a decision. Don't disbelieve, but believe. So becoming a Christian, it's so important that we understand this, is more like getting married... Than, uh, than catching the flu. Probably not a good time to be talking about flu. But there's a real difference. You go to bed at night, and you wake up in the morning, and you say to, my, you say to yourself, my goodness me, I think I've got the flu. My throat is sore, I've got a headache, I've got a temperature. It's not like that when you get married. You don't wake up one morning and say, my goodness me, I think I'm married. Who on earth is this person? No, it needs a decision. You take a step. And Jesus says, if you want to be a Christian, do not disbelieve, but believe. It's an act of the world. Lastly, will you notice... The purpose of John. And it really comes out there in verse 30 and 31. You see, you may read this passage and say to yourself, well, it's all good and well for Thomas because he saw Jesus face to face. 
If I saw Jesus face to face, I think I could also take that step. But Jesus doesn't see it like that. In fact, Jesus says, verse 29, Jesus says to Thomas, Have, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So he says to Thomas, you've seen me and believed, and that's great. I'm delighted. But it's even a greater thing when those who haven't seen me believe. It's quite an unexpected twist, isn't it? He says you are more blessed, you have more favor from God if you listen to my words and believe. Verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what John does in this gospel, he has given us eight miraculous signs. Verse 31, these are written, these signs are written, including the resurrection, so that having read them, we will come to faith in Christ. You see, some people say, if I could only see, I will believe. My dear friends, there were thousands and hundreds of people who saw Jesus, who saw his miracles and did not believe. It wasn't a matter of evidence. It was a matter of a hardness of heart. John says, no. Here is the gospel. Here's the eyewitness record of the miracles of Christ, of the resurrection of Christ. Here's all the evidence you need. Read it. Understand it. Believe it. And you are more blessed than Thomas. So true faith is not from physical sight. No, it's from believing the word of God. Let me close. Our time is gone. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot be a child of God unless you believe that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus rose from the dead. If you don't believe that Jesus is Lord, if you don't believe that Jesus died in your place, on your behalf, and that God raised him from the dead, you cannot be a Christian. You may be a nice person, you may be a religious person, but you cannot be a Christian person. There are no half measures. There's no middle ground. You can't sit on the fence. Remember, the fence belongs to the devil. Here's the eyewitness report. Here's the historical records. Wouldn't it be good this Easter Sunday, like Thomas, for you to finally stop your ducking and diving? And like Thomas, say, my Lord and my God. And I'm sure he fell on his face and worshipped him. Wouldn't today be a good day to finally acknowledge Jesus as your Lord as your God. Let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word and you may want to tell God where you are.
There may be someone here this morning who wants to say, Oh Lord, I don't understand it all, but I know that you died for me. I know that you died in my place for my sin. I know that you are alive and that God raised you from the dead. Will you rescue me? Will you make me a Christian? Will you help me to cry and say, My Lord and my God? And Father, we thank you so much that when we turn to you with all our questions and doubts, but when we call on you for mercy, that you hear and you answer. So will you work amongst us today for Christ's sake? Amen. Well, just before we close, thank you once again for joining us on this Easter Sunday morning. May I encourage you this week to read through John's Gospel. Start in chapter 1, perhaps do two chapters per day. And as you read each chapter, say to God, Oh God, will you make yourself real to me? Read through John's Gospel and come and find the living Savior who died and was raised from the dead for you.